Well, good morning. I can say good morning officially. I say good morning all the time at our church, but we meet in the afternoon and I'm always wrong. So good morning and I'll be right this time. It is a pleasure uh, to be with you uh, today. I bring you greetings from Christ's Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Fort Worth, one of uh, your sister churches. We are in the Texas Area Association together and also the Confessional Baptist Association. If you wonder who this guy is and what he's doing here, you're actually connected with me somehow officially. And that's probably pretty scary. And uh, But you bear with Todd, you bear with Brent, so you can bear with anybody. And so, but, uh, exactly. And I was speaking more of Todd than you. I just want to include him in there, include you in there. And so... Oh, well, I love you, love you, uh, love your brother, and love, uh, we love your church. We pray for you all. We're thankful for you, and we're privileged to have the opportunity to come be with you uh, today. If you have your Bible, please take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, I understand you've been in Matthew for Sunday school now for a while. Told your pastor earlier today that if uh, I mess up, he can fix it next Sunday in Sunday school. So you might be going back to Matthew 2. If he tells you it's Matthew 2 next Sunday, you'll know why. And uh, Matthew chapter 2, I want us to read from verses 19 through 23. I'd like to speak to you today about Jesus, the Nazarene, an unexpected Messiah. Jesus, the Nazarene. Unexpected Messiah. Matthew chapter 2, I'll read from verses 19 to 23. I am reading from the New American Standard, if you wonder what translation this is. But when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. <laughs> this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your precious and only begotten Son. And we come only on his merit and only by his blood, trusting fully in his work on our behalf that we might be able to have access before a throne that is a throne of grace. We do pray, O oh God, that you would help us today to see Jesus to see this Jesus who was called Jesus the Nazarene. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to hear the invitation of Philip to come and see this Savior. This one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, this one who was foretold of long ago, this one who humbled himself and came, came in such a way to be called a Nazarene, an unexpected name for the Messiah. We ask, O oh God, that you would bless the reading and now the preaching of your word to our hearts. We 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past three months at our church at Christ's Covenant, I have had the wonderful opportunity of introducing our congregation to the gospel of Matthew. You know, we've just recently merged and formed this new church, and so I'm experiencing this uh, on-again, off-again relationship with preaching. And I usually preach for a few months, and Ryan's going to preach for a few months. And, well, my first time up in the pulpit was for three months, so they're probably wondering, when's Ryan going to preach? And uh, he's preaching today, uh, much to their joy, I'm sure. But we've been walking now through Matthew for about three months, and we've made it to the end of chapter 2. And as I was thinking about today, I thought, well, we can make up something totally new. We can dig something out of a file from years ago. Why don't we preach on something that's at least fresh in my own heart and my own mind, and that is the Gospel of Matthew. So I want to take you today to this text regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called here in our text, a Nazarene. Now, for you and I today to hear that Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene is probably no surprise. And it probably doesn't present you with any kind of problem that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Probably no one out there has heard me say that Jesus is the Nazarene, and no one has sat there and said, oh, I'm aghast. I can't believe they asked this man to preach. He just called Jesus a Nazarene. I mean, the nerve of such a man. Let's pray for his church all the more. Why would he refer to our Savior with such a term? Well, in fact, had we been members of the early church, we would have been caught off guard by such a term. Interestingly, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 24, the early Christians were referred to as belonging to the sect of the Nazarenes. In that particular passage, in Acts chapter 24, there's a man by the name of Tertullus, who is a, 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 a Jewish lawyer. No offense if you're a lawyer here today, but uh, Tertullus probably wasn't highly regarded by many of these Christians hearing him as well. And in fact, he had come to accuse the Apostle Paul of his preaching of Jesus, but in accusing the Apostle Paul before Felix, the governor of Judea, he implicated all the Christians as belonging to the sect of the Nazarenes. And you can, you can almost hear the tone in the voice as he would have spoken that in the court that day. In fact, when the first disciples were being called, as you heard in the reading that we just had from John chapter 1, Nathaniel expressed the opinion of many hearing that Jesus was from Nazareth, saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, hearing that Philip and the others had found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote as having come out of Nazareth was unexpected for the kind of Messiah that Nathaniel and many others had long anticipated. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Not thou long-expected Jesus of Nazareth. Not thou long-expected Jesus who will be called a Nazarene. Not that 
Jesus. Surely another Jesus was the one anticipated and expected. Truly Jesus the Nazarene would have been an unexpected Messiah. But why? Why was this so? And if it were so unexpected, why would Matthew choose to introduce him this way? If it was so offensive, if it was so off-putting, then why present him like this? Why not, why not save that for later? <laughs> you know, once they're all con convinced. Why would this matter so to Moses, Moses Matthew, in his presentation of Jesus, and how does it help us today to know that Jesus was a Nazarene? Well, these are some questions that I hope to address as we look through our text. So in the words of Philip to Nathaniel, let me lead today with the invitation. Come and see what good thing has come out of Nazareth. Well, to introduce you to this Nazarene, I want to do a few things. So if you happen to be a note taker, this will give you a little bit of a map as to where we're going to hopefully travel and where we're going to end up. The first thing I want to do is I want to, I want to bring you into Matthew's gospel. Now this one's going to be hard because we've been doing this for the last 12 weeks and we're going to sum up 12 weeks of studies in about you know 10 minutes. At least that's the hope. And we'll be able to get where we want to go. My wife is already worried. I can, I can just sense it's coming out of there. She's thinking, you're hoping they'll call you back to do the next 11 parts, right? She probably didn't have quite that tone in her voice. She sounds much sweeter than that. But that's the way it goes off in her head sometimes. Well, I want to take you into Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> what is Matthew doing in his presentation of Jesus, especially in these opening few chapters? The second thing I want to do, as we've looked at this introduction to Matthew briefly, I want to take us to the text, the text we have in verses 19 to 23, and kind of walk you through that. And the third thing I want us to do is to take you a little deeper into Matthew's view of Jesus as the Nazarene. You and I might both see him as Matthew had come to see him. Keep in mind, Matthew, when writing the gospel, is reflecting back on these things about Jesus. The first time Matthew probably would have heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, Matthew might have said the same thing that Nathaniel said. But later he thinks back on this. And to him, it's a precious truth. Jesus is the Nazarene. Well, the early church to which Matthew wrote would have been a distinctly Jewish church. Now that, that's what makes it a little difficult for us today because I don't know, you know, where you're from and if you've taken the ancestry test and stuff like that or whatever, but I'm just going to guess probably we're in a room full of Gentiles, right? we got a bunch of genes, bunch of beards. They're not Jewish beards. Nobody's got those curly cue things going down the side of their head right here. Nobody's got a hat on or whatever. We're just a bunch of Texas Gentiles and here we are. Well, the early church, though, that Matthew wrote to would have been a distinctly Jewish church. The early church devoted to the apostles' teaching in the early chapters of the book of Acts was indeed a Jewish church. Perhaps even 
Completely so. Now they had some Hellenists. You remember those from Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows? There was a debate or discussion going on, some tension in the church. But even those Hellenistic Jews were what? They were Jews. The church had yet to go to the nations. Considering this helps us understand something of the audience to whom Matthew would have written and something of his approach in how to do that. And Matthew's gospel account, being Jewish, it is, it is a Christian gospel account, obviously, but again, distinctly Jewish. And it is, Matthew is, the primary gospel account or gospel record that the church has in its early days of existence. There is no listing of the Gospels when they are compiled together as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is no listing of the Gospels found in the history of the church in which Matthew does not stand as the head. Matthew is always the chief Gospel. Matthew was the first Gospel to be written, followed by Luke, then followed by Mark, and then perhaps followed by John. New Testament scholar David Allen Black notes of Matthew that it was the gospel of the original church of Jerusalem and having the authority of the 12 apostles, it was irrevocable to hear this phrase, the fundamental document of the Christian faith. Now they would have had the Old Testament in the synagogue, they would have had it on the scrolls and things like that, but they didn't have any of the New Testament at this point. Matthew is most likely the first book of the New Testament ever written probably written somewhere in the first decade or so after Christ's resurrection. The church, you'll recall from Acts chapter 2, is devoted. That's the word it uses. They are devoted to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, things such as that. But being devoted to the apostles' doctrine, they begin to realize soon that the apostles are not going to live forever. I mean, think about it, just a few years after Jesus is raised from the dead, Stephen has died, and Stephen's not an apostle, I understand that, but Stephen was a leader in the church. James, the brother of John, was an apostle, had died. Herod had so much fun putting James to death, and everybody seemed to be happy with it. He arrested Peter and tried to have Peter killed as well. The apostles were not going to live forever. Here again from David Allen Black, New Testament scholar, he makes this comment. He said that Christian tradition tells us that the twelve, that is the apostles, entrusted the important work of preserving the doctrine of the church or the story of Christ, entrusted it to Matthew, and so not long after the resurrection, Matthew set to work. And you and I have the book that he wrote. A consideration should be seen here by Matthew not just of his obedience to the task of telling the story, but to his approach in how the story was to be told. I mean, if you read Matthew, and you read Mark, and you read Luke, and you read John, you're reading four different books by four different men that take a different approach in every one. Now, sometimes Matthew, Mark, Luke are called the what? They're called the synoptic gospels because they see things the same. It doesn't take long to read Matthew, Mark, or Luke to realize they're not just telling the exact same story. Right? Yes, it's all about Jesus, but it's not done the same way. Matthew 
presents and so presses the Jewishness of Christ that it's unmistakable to whom he's writing. He is not writing to a bunch of Gentiles. He is writing to a bunch of Jewish believers. Luke, very clearly, the one who follows Paul on his journeys, Luke is writing to Gentile believers. But Matthew has a different approach. His presentation of Jesus intricately connects Jesus with the story, hear this, that has come before. Matthew is steeped in the Old Testament. Uh, in my Bible, I love to mark things and color things, and some of you may think that's just like heretical and blasphemous and terrible, but I do that, and I, I guess I was a kid that loved to color, and now I'm a grown man that loves to color, and I color all kinds of stuff in my Bible. And one thing I do in my Bible is I take a purple highlighter, and every time I come to an Old Testament, either quotation or an allusion, or something that just kind of sounds remotely like the Old Testament, I'm highlighting that thing in purple. And as I flip through the pages of the Gospel of Matthew, it's just purple, purple on every page. It is saturated with the Old Testament. <clears throat> One writer said this, he said, the importance of the Old Testament for Matthew cannot be overstated. The Old Testament is woven into the warp and the woof of this Gospel. The evangelist uses scripture to underline some of his most prominent and distinctive theological concerns. And this is so very much in the opening chapters of his work. Matthew is preeminently concerned with presenting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah foretold by the Old Testament prophets. So when Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. You can go to Matthew and read about what they wrote because it's just all over the page in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is demonstrating in these opening chapters that Jesus is the only one that has the rightful claim to be the Messiah. Now he does it by kind of assembling the story of Jesus in such a way that he focuses on five events in the life of Jesus. We're still trying to get in to the Gospel of Matthew, see what's happening here in these introductory chapters. Matthew studies the life of Christ, and Mark did that, and Luke did that, and John did that. Matthew, when he studies the early life of Jesus, he picks out five different events from the early infancy of Jesus, and he puts them in a particular order and tells the story, and then he connects them all by telling how they are foretold by the Old Testament prophets. He tells us that Jesus was conceived of a virgin. Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25 is not about the virgin birth, it's about the virgin conception of Jesus. Because there was told by Isaiah that a young woman would bear a child. And then he tells the story about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem and how this was foretold by the prophet Micah. And then he says that Jesus 
is tucked away in Egypt for a while and delivered out of Egypt. And it says in Hosea, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And then Matthew tells us that while he was in Egypt, he was preserved from death because Herod began to kill all the little infant boys that were two years and under. And the weeping and the sorrow, but also the hope was foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. And now he tells us in the last event of Jesus here in our text, coming out of Egypt and moving into Nazareth, that he might be called the Nazarene. He says this was foretold by the prophets. We have in this section of Matthew, Matthew building unmistakably what he sees as an insurmountable case for Jesus as the Christ. Think about the Apostle Paul, just a footnote here. The Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, you've probably seen this, he goes you know, to different places on his journeys and he always goes first where? He always goes to the synagogue. And in the synagogues, Paul would always proclaim Jesus as what? The Christ. It will say things like he reasons with the Jews to prove, to demonstrate that Jesus, the man, the historical man that was born, is the Christ, the Messiah, that long-expected Jesus. Matthew seeks to demonstrate here through these events and through their fulfillment that Jesus is unmistakably the Messiah. Well, this is how we saw Paul. We've had time to do that. We would go through the book of Acts. It's a wonderful study. Just go through the book of Acts and see how Paul goes in the synagogue over and over and over, demonstrating Jesus as the Christ. The apostles preached that way. Matthew is an apostle. He preaches that way. He wrote that way. Jesus himself, Jesus himself taught that way. Jesus himself often talked about himself as the one who was coming to fulfill. Remember those guys on the road to Emmaus? And after he'd been raised from the dead, he comes across these guys and they're like, oh, we thought he was going to be the guy. Jesus is like, I am the guy. Let me tell you how. And he begins to show how everything in the, in the law, everything in the, in the writings, everything in the prophets was all what? was all about him. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you study the scripture, search the scripture. Why? But you, but you miss me. And all the scripture has done what? It witnesses to me. It bears witness to me. Abraham, Abraham preached about me. Moses wrote about me. The apostles preached this way. Jesus preached this way. Matthew's writing this way. Each of these events has been clearly tied to a specific, and notice that, a specific Old Testament text. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's quoted in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, saying that's the text that is fulfilled in the conception of Christ and his subsequent birth. When Herod wanted to know where Jesus was to be born, where the Christ was to be born, the Messiah was to be born, the Pharisees didn't hesitate. They had that, they had this text like right, right, they didn't have to like, you know, look it up on their software or whatever. It was like right there in their head. Well, yeah, Micah 5 too. But as for you, Bethlehem and prophet, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of returning. 
And then when he, when he tucked away in Egypt for a little while, Matthew says, this is to fulfill Hosea 11.1. <laughs> when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then when, when there's weeping going on in Bethlehem, you can imagine the weeping. Think about Micah 5 too. The Messiah is to be born where? In Bethlehem. Where are all the babies killed? Bethlehem. There's got to be a lot of weeping there. Why? Because every mother who would have given birth at this particular time to a little bitty baby boy had that hope that perhaps hers might be what? The seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. And Herod kills every little baby boy two years and under in Bethlehem in its vicinity. There probably wasn't a lot of kids. It might have been like 20. 20? 2,000. One would have been enough to bring weeping, a crushing of, of hope in the future promise of God. But when Matthew hears about this event, when Matthew knows about this event in the life of Christ, he is reminded by the Spirit of God of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Hey, you got to remember Jeremiah chapter 31 is the only chapter in the entirety of the Old Testament that mentions the New Covenant explicitly. You go back and study Jeremiah chapter 31, the entire chapter is a chapter full of the hope of the New Covenant promise of God and bringing the forgiveness of sins. And right in the middle of it is verse 15. Thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel, who was a mother in Israel, is pictured as standing in Ramah. Ramah was the point of deportation for the Jewish sons to be carried away into Babylon. And as they're carried away into Babylon at the conquest of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, Rachel, who's long dead, Rachel is just kind of the personification of the nation itself. The mothers are weeping as their sons are taken off. Why? Because they're no more. It's not that they're dead. They've just gone to exile. But the very next verse in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 16 says, and I paraphrase, and from them will be one that will deliver you and establish a new covenant. Matthew's thinking like this. He says, I, I want to present Jesus as the hope. I want to present Jesus as the deliverer. I want to present Jesus as the Messiah. How can I do that? I've got all these stories, if you will, of the early life of Jesus. I'm going to pick five. And I'm going to put a text on each one to give encouragement to the church, the Jewish church, that the one that they have believed in, Jesus, is actually the Messiah. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been a Jew, a Jewish Christian in the early church? Going back to your family, going back and visiting the synagogue. You believe in Jesus? Jesus? And now they have Matthew's gospel. How this would fortify their faith. How this would strengthen their apologetic how this would give them a reason for the hope that they have. How this would give them answers to the objections of the unbelieving world. Well, this brings us to 
our final event. Now we expect, as we come to this final event at the end of Matthew chapter 2, we expect Matthew to hold form. We expect Matthew to not disappoint. I mean, he is just boom, 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 boom. He has pulled out Isaiah chapter 7, Micah chapter 5, Hosea chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 31. He's answered like every possible objection. Maybe I really haven't hoped in the right one. Maybe this isn't really the one. No, he's the one that was conceived of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, preserved, given hope in the midst of weeping. He is the one. We might look for Matthew at this point to play his strongest card. We might, maybe he's going to lay down like my mom would always do in 42. Any 42 players here? I'm dating myself just a little bit. If you're old enough to remember 42, raise your hand. Okay, put it down real quick. Everybody's looking at us like we're old. Okay. It's a domino game. And mom would hold her trunk, and she'd hold her best trunk for the end. Just when you thought she was about to lose, she'd plop the double five down on the table, and you're like, way to go, mom. And as it always would go with mom, you'd lose. That's the way it just was. We would expect Matthew here to bring out his strongest argument, but something, something at this point goes awry. Matthew's closing arguments are unexpected, to say the least. Matthew says in verse 23 that this event of coming out of Egypt, of of moving through Israel, of coming all the way up to Galilee, of coming to Nazareth, being called the Nazarene. This is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Now to the untrained ear, this may seem fine. Matthew's done it again. He's taken from the Old Testament, a text that clearly points to Jesus, the Messiah. Well enough, everything's good, move along. But something happens. In the Old Testament, there is no text. Hear that? There is no text that says he will be called a Nazarene. There's no text. I've looked. I didn't even look with Bible software. There is no Old Testament text that says he'll be called the Nazarene. There is no apocryphal text that says Jewish, Jesus will be called the Nazarene. There's no rabbinical text that says that Jesus the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. There's just not one. Really? None. That kills the sermon right there, doesn't it? What's going on? Well, maybe... Maybe Matthew just kind of fell off his A-game. He was doing really good. Maybe, maybe he hoped we wouldn't check him out. No. Surely he knew, even like the Apostle Paul, that you're going to encounter those Bereans, right? That are noble-minded, that are going to check to see if what you say is so. Surely he wouldn't make such a foolish mistake. Maybe we lost a book of the Bible. I've heard about those lost books of the Bible on PBS or something like that. No, it's not a lost book of the Bible. 
Well, maybe like the skeptics say, it's all just a bunch of bunk and we should just close it up and go home. This obviously wasn't right. Well, the answer to all those questions I would present to you is no. Matthew didn't fall off his A-game. He didn't hope we wouldn't check him out. There's not a missing book of the Bible somewhere, and it's certainly not just a bunch of bunk. We are reading the very inspired, inerrant word of God. Amen. Matthew's approach, though, at this point, is not the same approach that he takes in the other four quotations. In the words of one commentator, Matthew is taking an oblique approach. In other words, it's not straight on. It's not head on. Every, every other one was a very direct, head on type approach, quoting a particular Old Testament text. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Micah 5, verse 2, Hosea 11, verse 1, Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And now the last one. Notice the statement itself. He doesn't say that this fulfills what the prophet said. Or like back in chapter 1 and verse 22, he doesn't say this is what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Or chapter 2 and verse 5, it doesn't say this has been written by the prophet. Or chapter 2 in verse 15, this is to fulfill what had been spoken through the Lord or by the Lord through the prophet. Or chapter 2 in verse 17, where he actually mentions the name of the prophet spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. That's not how he does this last one. Notice in your Bible in chapter 2, verse 23, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, plural. Matthew here, we might say, is in some sense summarizing the general thrust of all the prophets. He's saying something similar to what Nathaniel or Philip said to Nathaniel in John chapter 1. We have found the one whom Moses and the prophets, what? Wrote about, told us about, and summing it all up, he presents Jesus as, since he's from Nazareth, he is to be called a Nazarene. And to kind of get at this a little more clearly, I want us to briefly walk through the text. So this is number two on your outline there. I want to think through the text just a moment. I'm going to do it under three different heads, these, these few verses that we have. Let me read the text for us again, and, and then we'll come back and just talk about each point briefly. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Three heads for this particular text. Providence, 
prophecy and purpose. Providence, prophecy, and purpose. Just going to hang a few thoughts on these terms. Providence. In verses 19 through 23a, which is almost the whole of the text, this comes under the term of providence. Notice there are various geographical movements in the text. There are four in particular. We start in Egypt. We move back to Israel, probably somewhere in the southern portions of Israel. It's likely that Joseph thought, let's head back to Bethlehem. We had a place to live there. That'd be a good place to go. Herod's dead. But then he realizes that Archelaus is ruling in place of his father. Archelaus was just as bad of a guy as Herod. And so he says, you know, let's go to Galilee. In fact, Joseph and Mary are from that northern region of Galilee and from the town of Nazareth. You can learn about that in Luke chapter 2 and other places. They're really kind of going home. This is hometown territory. And when they get to Galilee, they find their way to Nazareth. Four different places are mentioned here. There's Egypt, there's Israel, there's Galilee, and there's Nazareth. Matthew's being very specific. He is moving out of these areas one after another to a final destination. It's all very purposeful. It's all very detailed. Matthew includes various locations. He includes political figures like Herod and Archelaus. He includes angelic visitations, dream markers, just like he's done before. It's all very emphatic. It's not sloppy. He's putting detail in the movement. This doesn't seem like someone that's going to come to the end and just blow it. Matthew sees the movements of Christ in these events as providential. He sees God moving them from one place to another. Angels coming, messengers coming in dreams to communicate where they're supposed to go. Prophecy, point number two. Briefly, just look at 23b again. We've already mentioned this, but I just want to hang your thoughts on it under this term of prophecy. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Again, it's very clearly stated. It's stated in the same kind of basic phrasing that the other four points have been stated in. The only thing that's been added here is the idea that it's not just one single prophet, but it's prophets opening up the idea that it may be like a, a, a summary of the thoughts of all of them together. The problem here, as we've stated, it simply isn't in the Old Testament text. Now, there are some options, and we're not going to take time to go into these because I can tell my time is ticking away and I'm not in my place, and I don't know what the clock's supposed to say, and I know I have more to go. So let's just skip past what those options are because all the options really fall short. I think we simply have to admit we don't have a text. But I think the text here is phrased in such a way that it makes us think, I don't really need a text. I have texts. I have the whole of the prophets, which really, in Jewish parlance, the prophets can cover not just the law and the writings and the prophets, it covers all of the Old Testament. Moses was a prophet. He writes the books of law. David is a prophet. He has the majority of the writings, and the prophets are, well, prophets, not to be complicated. So here, when Matthew is summing up the idea of the prophets, I think he's just simply saying, when I take the whole of the Old Testament together, I can call this down to an argument that says Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene. The question is why, the purpose. Matthew 
presents here these prophets, and I would just give you this, this one statement by R.T. France, and this sums up, I think, a little bit of what we're trying to say here. He is not making a direct quotation, France says, but rather introducing a theme, a theme of prophetic expectation. When the prophets of old looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, they saw a kind of person who would be called a Nazarene. This kind of gets us to the third broad point of what's Matthew getting at? What is, what's the point of calling him this Nazarene? The Old Testament prophets formed, when considered together, they, 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 they formed a view uh, or, a, or an I hate to use the word opinion because it sounds like it's like they're making this up. But they were of the conviction. Let's put it that way. They were of the conviction that the kind of man that was going to come, to be the seed of the woman, to be the virgin-born son of the young maiden, to be the one who was born in Bethlehem, to be the one who would be called out of Egypt and recapitulate and do everything that Israel failed to do, proving himself to be the true Israel, the true son of God that would come out of Egypt, when the prophets look forward to a day of future hope and glory in the new covenant in that day that we saw several times as we read out of Isaiah chapter 12, in that day, in that day, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 12, great future text of future hope. When the prophets looked toward the future, they were of the conviction that the kind of man that was going to come was going to be the kind of man that men would call a Nazarene. Why? And it's true. We can look throughout the Gospels and see Jesus was called the Nazarene. The demons called him the Nazarene. You, Jesus, Nazareth, son of the most high God, you've got to put that demon voice in there. Right. It's not like he was read a Frank Peretti novel this week. By the way, don't read those if they're still published. Just burn them. All right. That's a whole other story. Speaking back to my childhood. Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. He heard that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he calls out to him Jesus, not Jesus of Nazarene. He calls out to him Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Even blind Bartimaeus began to get the idea that the son of David, the promised coming king, the promised Messiah, was going to be from Nazareth. Nazareth was a place, geographically speaking, of scorn and distaste. J.C. Ryle makes the comment in his, uh, in his notes on John chapter 1, verse 46. He says, this question, this question of Nathaniel's, this question shows the low estimate of Nazareth, where our Lord had been brought up, where he was held, where he was kind of inculcated there, if you will, as a young boy, and into manhood. This remains his home. He comes out of Nazareth later in the gospel accounts to have his public ministry, but he probably lived in Nazareth until he was like around 30 years old, Luke says. Ryle says, it was an obscure town in a corner of Galilee, not far from the borders of the province, and its reputation seems to have been very bad. Nathaniel could not remember any prophecy about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth, because there's not one. 
And at once he stumbled at the idea of him whom Moses and the prophets had described belonging to such a contemptible place. When the prophets looked ahead and saw this one coming, they saw one coming, listen, who would be despised. They saw one coming who would be scorned. They saw one coming who would be mocked. They saw one coming that men would hate so much they would praise him early in the week and four days later they would say, we will not have this man rule over us. Crucify him. And Pilate says, crucify your king. We will have no other king but Caesar. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Talking to Janice on the way down, I was thinking about how quick, how quick the praise of the people of God that are assembled for worship can turn to the cries of crucify. When you realize that the Jesus that you're praising is not the same Jesus that really is. You see, the kind of Jesus that the, that, the, that the Jews wanted was a Messiah King. One who would come in triumphantly, riding on that little beast of burden. He's going to come in. He's going to trample Rome. He's going to put us in our place of primacy. We're going to have this kingdom like the Old Testament speaks about from sea to sea. And the Son of David is going to come and rule. He's going to affirm us in our righteousness. We're going to condemn the rest of the world. It's not the kind of Messiah Jesus was. You see, the Old Testament anticipation of this Messiah pictured one who was a friend of sinners. It pictured one in the prophet Isaiah, the same one that uh, Matthew quotes early in this particular gospel record in chapter 1, later in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground, like that one in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, Isaiah 11. Didn't ask for that text to be read today, but it was a great text. Who read that? Cruz, did you read that? Where are you? I don't know where you went. You're somewhere out there. Anyway, one of you guys read it. This, this branch that comes out of Jesse. That's what he's going to be. A little branch. A little twig. A little branch. But what starts as a little branch, one day in the providence of God will become that whole giant tree in the kingdom paradise. Remember that? That all the birds come and nest in. There's room for all types of birds. That means people like you and like me. There's room for the cultured people of Fort Worth, for the country folk of Waco. <laughs> we are not cultured, and as soon as this service is over, this tie will come off. Friends, listen, the kind of Messiah that the prophet said was going to come was going to be one that had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. This is the Messiah 
whom Jesus was. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. Why was he so full of sorrow? Why was he so full of suffering? Why was he so burdened with this bearing of the scorn and mockery? Because brothers and sisters, you needed him to be that for you. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Friend, the sorrow that is common to your life because of sin and because of Satan and because of the world and because of your flesh that just won't leave you is a sorrow and a grief and a suffering that he bore. He bore it for you. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. I mean, we're no better than Job's worthless counselors. Surely, Job, you must have done something wrong to have brought this about in your life. Surely, Jesus, you must have done something wrong. He must be hanging there on the cross for something that he has done. In fact, look, right at the top of the cross, it says, Jesus, the Nazarene. Surely, he did something wrong to be so scorned by men. So they passed by him. They wagged their heads. They mocked at him. They, they, they gambled for his garments. They tore his clothes. They gave them away. Why? Because he doesn't need them. Look at him. He's naked. He's bleeding. He's dying. He's nothing. But they forgot. And you can forget the message of the prophets. He was pierced through for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The chastening of your well-being so that you might flourish, so that you might have life, so that you might have it abundantly, so that you might have the forgiveness of sins and joy and hope of everlasting life. He was chastened for you. And by his scourging, friend, you are healed if you are a believer in Christ. And if you are not a believer in Christ right now, you can be healed right now. You can look upon the sinless Savior and you can be healed of every sin. You can look upon the innocent Savior and you can be washed before God as if you are innocent of all condemnable sin. But there's more than that because the one who hung there, this sinless Savior, was also the fully righteous Savior. And you need not just have your sins forgiven. You need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And he'll give that to you. Friend, all he does is take your sin and give you all that is his. He takes all the deprivation of your evil and he gives you all the glory of his righteousness. He will always be the benefactor. And you will always be in Christ the beneficiary.
Spurgeon said, Certainly he has long been called the Nazarene, both by Jews and violent unbelievers. Spitting on the ground in disgust many a time has his fierce adversary hissed out the name the Nazarene, as if it were the climax of contempt. Yet, O Nazarene, thou hast triumphed. Jesus of Nazareth is the greatest name among men. O Lord, my King, thou hast Thou art dishonored by thy foes, so shalt thou be adored among thy friends with all their heart, with all their soul. While others call thee Nazarene, we will call thee Jesus, Jehovah, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Let me invite you to come. He invites you to come, to come and to see. And I pray today that God would give you the grace to come and the eyes to see like you've never seen before. Let's pray together. For gracious and merciful God, our glorious Nazarene, Lord Jesus Christ, held in such contempt by men, and they still mock you, and they still spurn you, and they harden their hearts, and they stiffen their neck. Oh God, oh God, would you today Take the stiff neck and make it loose. Would you take the stony heart and give it a heart of flesh? Would you open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf? But just like Bartimaeus who cried out to Jesus, might we see, like the lame man in the temple, might we, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, may we rise up and walk. Like the dead, may we become alive. How we come? How we come today and see and see and never stop seeing until one day, until one day when we stand before Him and see Him face to face. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my theme in glory throughout the ages to sing of his love, the love of Jesus the Nazarene for me. We ask all this in